that time of year again. It's about three weeks into January. It's that time when we begin to give up on our New Year's resolutions. <laughs> I don't know what resolutions you made this year. Uh, I know that I made and broke mine before the New Year. Um, <laughs> I made mine beginning of December. It kind of happened like this. I, I was coming back from lunch one day, probably at Carl's Jr., and I come back to my office and I, I sit down in my chair. And literally, it's like one of those subway commercials where you know where the, the fat person, they just got done eating a burger and they sit down and the, the chair just disintegrates. <laughs> so that's exactly what happened to me. I sat down and my chair just, just broke apart. <laughs> but I have a very uh, strong self-esteem. And so my first thought was, was not that maybe I'm a little heavy. My first thought was, wow, that's an old, crappy chair. <laughs> oh, we got to replace that thing. That's a, that's a hazard. Now... John and Dean and Martin didn't let me off that easy. They, they ribbed me quite a bit, but it was like water off a duck's back. I mean, I was just like, of course I'm not, not heavy. So I go home, and I don't tell my wife about this, obviously. And, uh, but at one point, she, she turns to me and she says, hey, you know what you should do? You should get one of those big yoga balls to sit on at work. And I'm like, a yoga ball? Like, why in the world would I want to sit on a yoga ball? And she says, well, you know, it would tighten up your, your midsection, like your core. And I'm like, what are you saying, you know? I, I don't need to tighten up my mid... I'm pretty tight right now, you know? I, I may be a little husky, I may have a little padding here, but I'm, I'm hard underneath, you know? And she just kind of shrugs and doesn't say anything. And it's okay, okay, it's fine, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to be the buffest husband you've ever seen, I'm going to... I'm going on a diet, I'm going I'm to, you know, exercise, and so at first I did a really good job. Um, I stopped having more than one serving at dinner, which is hard for me. Uh, I stopped uh, taking donut holes and candies and, and cookies out of the church refrigerator during work hours. Um, so hard, man. You guys bring really good stuff for plaza time, and then you leave it. Uh, and, and Dean would actually come and tempt me. He would bring cookies to my desk, and I'd be like, no, no, I, I stood firm. Uh, and I, would, I, started, uh, I started exercising, I would jog home from work, I'd jog around the, around the block and all that kind of stuff. But man, December is a hard time. It's a hard time to, to go on a diet and start exercising. Uh, we started getting, getting invited to all these Christmas potlucks. And I have this thing about potlucks, I want everyone to feel good about what they brought. <laughs> and, and so my way of doing that is to, to sample each dish and maybe have, you know, go back for seconds and thirds to help people really feel good. Uh, so they know that Pastor Dave likes their dish. And so I, I was doing that, and um, it's hard to run in December because it gets dark early and it's really cold, and I just want to go home and, and sit and veg out. And So pretty much by New Year's, uh, I, I had stopped my, my resolution. Um, now the reality was, of course, I did want, of course I wanted to be in shape. I, I want, you know, I want to be that guy with, with a 12-pack. And you're like, how in the world did he get so many muscles, you know? But... In reality, besides wanting that, there were other things that I wanted more, other priorities that were higher for me. Uh, I want to eat whatever I want, whenever I want. Um, I, I, I want to just go home in the evening and, and veg out and relax, and those priorities were higher, and they undercut my goal of, of losing weight and getting in shape. And I think that's the nature of New Year's resolutions for the most part. I think we want a certain benefit, maybe it's weight loss, or, or we're gonna, we want to learn a foreign language. And we say, okay, I'm going to do this. I make a resolution. I'm going to go for this. But we don't really count the cost. We don't think carefully. Are there other priorities in my life 
that are higher than that priority and that might undercut it and keep me from finishing and from achieving my goal. I mean, if you want to lose weight but you're unwilling to stop eating the stuff that you're eating and, and exercise, you're probably not going to lose weight. If you want to learn Italian but you're unwilling to study Italian and, and relaxation is a higher priority for you in the evening, then you're not going to learn Italian. It's just the reality. In our passage today, I think Jesus says, don't make a commitment to me like that. Okay, I don't want to be your New Year's resolution. If you're not willing to, for me to be your highest priority in your life, then don't make a resolution to follow me, because it won't work. It's not going to work. We're doing a series on the hard sayings of Jesus, and today our, our passage is a paradigm example of one of those hard sayings. It's found in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is traveling here. And we know from Luke chapter 13 that he's traveling to Jerusalem. He's heading there and he's taking a long, very roundabout way. But eventually his, his goal, his end point is Jerusalem. And it's his last trip. He's been doing ministry for three years, and when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified. We know that he'll rise from the dead after that, but he knows this is it. This is his last trip. And as he's traveling, there's large crowds traveling with Jesus. And we know from, both from Scripture and from experience that crowds are fickle. Okay? They, they, they may be committed one day and be uncommitted the next day. You look at, look at Laker fans. I hate to point on that, but you know everybody's really excited about their new coach, Mike D'Antoni, and then about a month later, people are like, oh, man, let's get, get rid of him, get someone else. You know, people, the crowds are fickle. And this crowd that's following Jesus has mixed, mixed commitment levels, mixed motivations for being with him. Some people uh, are just there because he's a celebrity. They're curious. They hear that he's a magician, that he does miracles, and they, they want to see for themselves. Some people are needy. Uh, they know that Jesus heals and does miracles, and they, they have issues. They're sick or whatever, and they need to be healed. And so they're coming to Jesus for that. Some people believe that Jesus is a political Messiah, that he's going to take over, and he's going to kick the Romans out, and they want to be on the, the ground level of this political movement. And so they want to get on the inside with Jesus. And then there are people who are genuine spiritual seekers, and they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so there's all these different kinds of people with him. And they are, Jesus lets them be with him. I think that's important to notice, because this is a hard passage. This is kind of a, it sounds like Jesus is being pretty insensitive. But it's important to notice that Jesus is letting these people travel with him. He is seeker-friendly. Jesus is kind. He's caring. He welcomes the crowds. Scripture says that Jesus has compassion on the crowds, because they're, they're harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus healed people. He would stay up till late at night healing he would feed people because he was worried that if they, they went home without eating, they were going to collapse, and so he multiplied food for them. He, he would bless their children. He'd let people bring their little kids, and he'd, he'd spend time blessing and praying for them. So Jesus is totally seeker-friendly. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which is the theme verse of the whole, the whole book of Luke, it says, Jesus says, I came to seek 
and to save the lost. So Jesus is not only seeker-friendly, he not only welcomes people, he's seeking them. He's seeking people for the kingdom of God. But at the same time, Jesus is also honest. He's not a salesman. Okay, he's not just trying to get you to buy into something that you don't completely understand. And so at one point, he turns to the crowd, and he makes it very clear here what discipleship holds in store for those who follow Christ. He says, look, if you want to be my disciple, you want to follow me? Here's what you can count on for sure. Family rejection, social persecution, and maybe martyrdom. That's what, that's what is in store for you. And if you don't love me more than your closest relationships, even more than your own life, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Jesus is not trying to be rude here. He's, not being real, he's just being realistic. Okay? He's not trying to be mean. He's not saying, he's not saying hey, uh, raise your hand if you love your parents more than me. Anyone? Yeah, yeah, you, Jim. I thought about it. I thought that. Okay, get out of here. I do not want you in my crowd. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, look, you guys are following me, and you can come. You're welcome to come. But if you love your parents more than me, you love your kids, your wife more than me, your life more than me, you're not going to make it long term. So why waste your time? Why waste your time? If your family's your God, then go and be with your family. If, if your earthly life is your God, then go somewhere safer, somewhere more comfortable. So we need to, we need to look at Jesus, and I think this is important for us to, to model ourselves after Jesus, because on one hand, we totally need to be seeker-focused, seeker-friendly. We need to go out and seek, seek to reach people for Christ, but at the same time, we can't become salesmen. We totally want to say, hey, come as you are, absolutely come as you are, but we can't let that slip into follow however you want. We welcome people where they're at because Christ can save anyone. He can forgive anything. He can turn any life around. It doesn't matter what your past is. But at the same time, we can't tell people that it's okay to not obey Christ in certain areas of their life. We can't tell people that they can just do whatever they feel like as long as they said a magic prayer. That's not what Jesus said. He loved sinners, but he wasn't a salesman. And so he says, if anyone does not hate his family, his father and mother, cannot be my disciple. And that hate there, that word hate, I think that's the, real, the crux of the passage, right? That's the hard part of the passage. Well, what do you mean? Jesus, are you telling me I have to hate my family? And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is telling us that we literally have to hate our family. Uh, I think this is not literal. I think it's hyperbole. And the reason for that is because there's other places where Jesus tells us to love our family. Actually, at one point, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's rebuking the Pharisees because the Pharisees were telling people that you could take the money that you had saved up to support your aging parents, you could take that and give it to the temple building project, and that would be good, and, and God would be honored by that. And so you'd say, tell your parents, hey, I was going to help you out, but I'm just going to give it to the, to the building project at the temple. And Jesus says, you are subverting the commands of God, the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. You are undermining that with your own human traditions. Paul tells us that uh, someone who, who uh, is unwilling to support their family is worse than an unbeliever. Paul says that a husband ought to love his wife and give himself for as Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church. So it's totally right to love your family. But what is happening here, I think, is that both in Jewish and in Greek literature, the word hate could be used to make comparisons. And it would mean to love something less. For example, another place in Scripture, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and you'll hate the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon, things. 
I don't think that Jesus is saying there, hey, if you want to love God and serve him, then you have to hate money, literally. Like, you rip out the, the bills in your wallet and you're stumping. I hate money. I don't think that's his point. His point is that your motivation and the, the controlling priority of your life must be God, not money or not, not worldly things. God has to take precedent far and above everything else. Uh, a silly example of this would be... Um, uh, I, my wife and I uh, enjoy this one movie, uh, Sweet Home Alabama. I'm, I'm not a big into chick flicks. I'm not a big guy into that kind of stuff. But this is a decent movie. I think it's clean. It's funny. And so we'll watch it from time to time, uh, past the time in the evening. But there's one time of the year when there's no way I'm going to watch Sweet Home Alabama, and that's a Sunday afternoon in the fall. Okay, NFL football is on. <laughs> NFL football takes priority compared to... Compared to NFL football, I hate Sweet Home Alabama. I can't stand it compared to, to watching football. There's no way I'll watch it. Now, in reality, I will watch it if my wife insists, so please don't insist. <laughs> um, but you can kind of see the tension. Under, just, just in itself, it's a fine movie, but compared to football, I, I hate it. I can't stand it. And Jesus has said, compared to your love for me, your, your love for your family ought to appear as hate. I take priority. Now, Family, in, the, in this traditional kind of a culture, family was number one. It was your top priority. It came first. It, was, it became before all other allegiances, all other loyalties, even your loyalty to the state, to the government. Family came above that. Families were patriarchal, so you always had to obey your dad or your grandpa, whoever was the oldest male. Didn't matter how old you are. It's not like today. You're 18, 21. You're like, okay, I'm leaving home. I'm going to do what I want. That's not how it rolled back then. If you're, if you're a guy, you got old enough to get married, you would get married, you would come back, and they would either build, build a room onto the family house, or they would build a house right next door to the family house. And you, you would live there, and you would still be under the control of your dad or your grandpa. That's, that's just how it was. And so the patriarch of the family made the rules. And the number one rule was to do nothing that would ever, ever, ever dishonor your family. Number one rule. Everything you do must be either to increase or maintain the family honor. You must never, ever, ever do something that would bring shame upon the family. Now in context here, in Luke 14, you look in the context, Jesus has been telling his disciples to do some things that could indirectly bring shame on their families. He tells uh, in Luke chapter 14, at the beginning of of this passage, Jesus is at a Pharisee's house having dinner. And, and all these, these guys are trying to get the most honorable seat at the table. And that was normal, because you want to either maintain or increase your honor, and theref- thereby uh, maintain or increase your family honor. That was normal. And Jesus looks at these guys, and he says, hey, hey don't, don't worry about that. Take the lowest seat. Take the most shameful seat at the table, and then if the host wants to, he'll elevate you. And that, that was just unheard of. Why would I purposefully take a lowly, shameful seat that would thereby shame my family? And then Jesus looks at the host and he says, hey, when you throw a party, when you throw a banquet, don't invite your family. Don't invite like the honored people from the community. Invite like the poor and the lame and the blind. Those are the people you want to bring, the the scum of community. Don't don't go for the top, go for the the bottom. Again, it was unheard of in that culture to to invite like the scum. That That would shame you. And then in Luke chapter 15, right after this passage, Jesus goes and he starts hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. And, and the idea is that he and his disciples will be seeking and saving the lost, those kind of people. Again, that would bring shame on your family. Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, use your money to, to get eternal treasures and to spend it on, on the needy and the poor around you, on people in your life. Don't, don't hoard it. 
Again, that's not how people did things back then. Your family wouldn't be real thrilled. And then ultimately, we know that Jesus went to the cross. And after that, it became illegal socially to follow him. And it became shameful. If you followed him, you and your family could be kicked out of the synagogue. And so there's many places in the world where this is still the reality, that it's hard, very, very hard for people to become Christians because your family will persecute you, your society will persecute you. The Middle East, India, parts of China, if you follow Christ, in some places your family will have a funeral before you're dead. They'll say, that person's dead to me now, even though you're still alive. And your, your, your society will try to arrest you. However, I want to be careful to... to, to be reminded that Jesus says, anyone, if anyone comes to me, anyone, and that's universal there. It's every, it's not specific to a culture or to a time period. I, I think the danger here is that sometimes we get a little bit inoculated by the historical background. And so we hear this and we're like, okay, that totally makes sense. Jesus is saying that you have to hate your family because, you know, it's a very patriarchal culture. And, well, thank God things aren't that way anymore. And we leave here and we had a nice history lesson and we don't feel the weight of this on ourselves. Jesus is saying, no matter what culture you're a part of, no matter what time period you're a part of, in every period of history, I have to be your top priority. I have to be your top allegiance. Over family, over friends, over stuff, over your own life. And he's saying, if not, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot. This is important, because this, Jesus isn't saying this is, advanced, this is the key to advanced discipleship. He's not like, hey, you want to have a little more, like, you want to move up in your Christian life, you want a little more meaning, a little more purpose, start hating your family. That's, that's, that's the beginning. Hey, you want to be a leader in the church? Hate, hate your family. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, you want to be my disciple? This is discipleship 101. If you don't put Jesus first, you won't make it at all to the finish line. He's not saying you're going to get a smaller crown in heaven. He's, not, he's saying you're not going to make it. Now again, let me pause here. Jesus is not trying to be mean for the sake of being mean. He's not trying to be a killjoy. He's not trying to be hard for the sake of being hard. He's just telling it like it is. He's saying, look, if you want to follow me, there's a lot of things that are going to trip you up, even good things that can try to trip you up. The path is narrow, and there are few who find it. It's like the parables of the soil. You have the one soil, people don't even listen to Jesus, but you have two kinds of soil where people listen and they say, yeah, that's great. I, I, the gospel, that's good. But then the cares of this life, the worries of this life, the desire for, uh, to be accepted by society and by their friends, it comes and it chokes the seed. The fourth kind of soil are people who hear, they accept it, and then they go and they bear fruits. And they follow. And Jesus is saying, the only way to make it as my disciple is to place allegiance to me ahead of everything else, ahead of every other loyalty and allegiance in your life. It's the only, he's not saying you have to. He's just saying it's the only way it's going to work. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has 
cannot be my disciple. So here Jesus is saying, just count the cost. Count the cost. Uh, a guard tower in this culture, um, it was something that you would build if you were a wealthy landlord. You had lots of property, vineyards, and fields, and so people were always trying to break in and steal your stuff. And so if you had enough money, you would build a tower, and you would put a servant in that tower, and, and that servant would keep watch. And if somebody tried to break in, they'd, they'd blow the horn. It'd be like a, an ancient alarm system. And so Jesus is saying, hey, that's fine, but if you don't have enough money to complete it, why would you start it? If all you have enough money to do is to build the, the foundation, then you've wasted your money, you've wasted your time, and you've totally shamed yourself. Everybody's going to see that you started out and you couldn't complete it. I was trying to think of a modern example of this, and I thought when I was growing up, I used to see these commercials on TV for the Navy. And I'd see these huge boats like roaring across the ocean, going to different places around the world, and the guys are wearing the cool uniforms with the shiny boots and the big guns. And as a kid, I was like, wow, you know, I, I like boats and I like guns and I like traveling. I should totally join the Navy. Now, actually, I get, I get motion sick, so that I did kind of count the cost. I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's not going to work. But I can totally imagine somebody saying, hey, that, that's me, right? I like guns. I like boats. I like travel. I'm going to join the Navy. And then they got in a battle situation, like, whoa, people get hurt out here. That's, that's not what I signed up for. And they, they take off. And they get whatever, court-martialed or dishonorable discharge. And so Jesus says, count the cost. Don't follow on a whim. Think about this carefully. In the second parable, I think what he's saying here is, if you think that you can fight against God, you think that you can fight against God's control over your life, you think that you can oppose him, so be it. But if you realize that you cannot oppose God, you cannot defeat God, God's control over your life, that ultimately you will be judged and destroyed if you fight him, if you realize that, then Jesus says, surrender. Surrender to God and accept his terms. But you can't have it both ways. And if you surrender, then God becomes your master. He becomes owner of all. And you become a steward of whatever God allows you to manage. This is a heavy passage. I, won't, I, won't, I can see from your faces, it's heavy. And so, just to have, bring it kind of to a close here, there's two application questions I have. And the first is, how are we doing with this? How are we doing? Principle is pretty simple. Be devoted to Christ over everything. Family, life, everything. So where do you struggle with this? Uh, for me, honestly, the hardest thing for me, the hardest place for me to put devotion to Christ above is my kids. That's the hardest place for me to do that. I think in traditional cultures, I know in traditional cultures, uh, the patriarch, the patriarch and the matriarch were the centerpiece of the family. So either, either it's mom and dad or it's grandpa and grandma. They are the centerpiece of the family. All the attention focuses on them. Of course, people love kids. Of course, they love their kids and their spouse. But, but the, the, the center of the family are the patriarch and the matriarch. And so that's what Jesus is speaking to here in that context. However, in, I think in respectable, family-oriented, middle-class American culture, I think our priorities, our focus is around, tends to revolve around our kids. Okay? I think our kids tend to be the centerpiece of our family. Not that we don't love grandpa and grandma, uh, but, but the kids are, are where our attention lies and where we focus on. We focus on their education. We want them to have the best 
possible education. We want them to have every opportunity to be great. And so we sign them up for 17 different sports and every musical instrument and art classes and whatever because they must be a genius at something. We just have to find it. And so we're, you know, we're doing all this work to help them realize their potential and we're getting them clothes so hopefully they're popular at school and, and the best diet, the best nutrition possible. And, and of course, at Christmas and birthdays, we want them to feel special. And so we you know, have parties and give them lots of gifts and that's good, okay? I'm not saying those things are bad. Those things are good. We love our kids. Jesus loves our kids. But he also loves kids who have nothing. What if Jesus asked you to devote some of the money that you spend on your kids or your grandkids and give it to kids with nothing? Because I think he already has in his word. And what if that made your kids angry at you? either now or someday in the future. And you you can think about this. And you're like, man, what if my kids come to me and they say, oh, Dad, why didn't you give me all the opportunities that the other kids had or all the clothes or all the stuff that the other kids had? Which loyalty will you choose? For some of you uh, American young adults out there, you're looking at this passage and you're like, man, this is not a hard passage at all. I mean, put Jesus over my parents? Man, there's all all kinds of things over my parents. Like, that's, that's not a problem. Easy. Right? I, I moved away from home, now I do what I want, um, and I'm not married, I don't have kids, uh, I, don't, I never listen to my siblings, I don't even call them anymore, I'm like, I, I'm just, yeah, sure, Jesus, you're ahead of all those things. I would say, okay, but what is the most important relationship in your life? Are you dating someone? Great. Is that person pressuring you to have premarital sex, or maybe you're pressuring that person? You know what the Bible says, that sex outside of marriage is wrong. And you do, part of you wants to follow Christ, really. But you also love your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you want to preserve and enjoy that relationship. Jesus says, count the cost. You can't serve two masters. No matter what, you will choose one over the other. Your behavior will do it for you. And so how are we doing? Putting Jesus first in our lives. Where do you struggle? The second question that I think at this point you might want to be asking me is how can we be sure that Christ is our highest priority? I want him to be highest, but how do I know? We all get distracted. The reality is that we, we, it's very easy to elevate other priorities above our devotion to Christ. We're constantly tempted to do so. Man, and if we have to be perfect, then, then we're all in trouble. That's not what I'm saying. And I hope, I hope you don't go away with that. But the reality is it's, it's a process. It really is. It's a process. I I believe that at salvation, we commit to give everything we we know of ourselves to Christ. We put him first. Christ, you have it all. I'm yours. But as we go along, the Holy Spirit is working in us, and eventually, we begin to discover areas in our life where obedience to Christ is not our top priority. And we were blind to those at first. We just didn't see those things. But now, the Holy Spirit convicts us and begins to open our eyes to those things. And at that point... If our salvation was genuine, then eventually we will surrender those areas to Christ. It's not automatic. It may be a struggle. It may take a long time, especially if there are habits, ingrained habits there. And we'll we'll fight against those habits, and it'll be a struggle. But I believe that eventually we'll give those things to Christ. We'll surrender to him. And we may even take them back again. But eventually, ultimately, we will give them. By God's grace, our allegiance to Christ will win out over other loyalties and desires. And once we get through that process and we say, okay, I've given this to you, God, I'm good now, then eventually the Holy Spirit will illuminate something else in our life that we have to surrender and put Christ first in. 
We're not perfect, but we're fighting. We're fighting to put Christ first. We're fighting to be completely devoted to him. It starts, though, by counting the cost. Don't treat Jesus like a New Year's resolution. Come to him with an attitude of genuine repentance and faith. Turn from other loyalties and other allegiances and put Christ first in your life. Trusting in his complete forgiveness for you at the cross when you do that. Trusting that he he is faithful and his ways for you are best. They truly are in your best interest. And rely on his strength to follow him. And if you do that, if you rely on him and you say, Christ, I do want to put you first. Open my eyes. Help me to continue to, to fight the fight of faith. If you do that, he will make himself your number one priority. And he will carry you and help you finish the race of faith. Let's pray. Lord, this is a heavy passage. I don't know how to get around the heaviness. I, I don't think I want to. We shouldn't. Lord, it's convicting for me. There's certainly areas first. Lord, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so our only hope, Father, is to rely on you. We don't put our hope in our own grandiose resolution to put you first, but we rely on your strength one day at a time, minute by minute. Knowing that you love us, Lord. Lord. Faithful love us. I want to put this in you. You open our eyes to things where you're not your priority and you're giving us the reason. 